You're listening to Bella Figura, the tradition of living beautifully. I am your host, Dolores Alfieri Taranto. And on this show, we talk spirituality for the rest of us with a focus on beautifying all facets of your life. Using heritage, culture, beauty by hand, ancestral traditions, and old world style as a means to do so. Hey everyone, welcome back. It's our part two episode with my dear friend John Viola. If you haven't listened to part one, I definitely recommend you hit pause here and just go back to the previous episode and listen to that first. We were in the middle of what uh, is very common between us, which is we start on a topic and we just keep going and going and we could talk forever. And so I decided to kind of cut the conversation short for part one. So here we're we're literally just going to dive right into it. So you'll notice I don't have my usual introduction uh, because it's just literally starting the second half of the same conversation. In this part two episode, we focus a little bit less on Sicily and more on the mainland, specifically the area of Matera in Basilicata and Napoli, our favorite uh, city in Italy, and that's in the region of Campania. But before we jump in here, I do just want to do a little housekeeping, let you know that next week, season three will be wrapping up with episode 10, where I plan to do a kind of recap, talking about what I've taken away and what I've learned from all these conversations that I've had this season on the topic of slowing down. And I'll talk a little bit about if I've actually managed to slow down (laughs) and kind of how I've been incorporating the things that I've learned from all my wonderful guests and how I plan to continue to do so. So definitely make sure you're subscribed to the show if you aren't already so that episodes just show up in your feed and you don't have to search for them. I'll also, in next week's episode, be announcing the theme for season four, which I'm really excited about, and I'm already here behind the scenes lining up some amazing guests that I cannot wait to share with you. And before I introduce you to John, I just want to remind you that House of Tokamen continues to be the sponsor of this show. We love House of Tokamen, which sources vintage, handmade, natural, non-toxic rugs that are made to last a lifetime. I have rugs from House of Tokamen. They have changed my living spaces, and I just love walking into the room and knowing that the rugs in my home align with my values. Annabelle, the owner of House of Tokamen, is generous enough to share a 25% off discount with Bella Figura listeners. You can use the code BELLA25 to receive 25% off any rug. Check her out at hotrugs.net. I will link to that in the show notes. Her business is catered to the things that matter so much to me, as well as I know to so many of you, which is authentic things that are meant to really last and even be handed down to the next generation. Items for our home and for our lives that are made with skill, with passion, and with care and are not meant just to be another item 
in our throwaway culture. Again, you can use the code BELLA25 for 25% off any of the most beautiful rugs you will lay your eyes on. The link to her site is in the show notes, but again, that's hotrugs.net. Okay, so before we jump into this conversation, just a little bit about John, if you're not already familiar with him. John is host of the Italian American Podcast and previously served as President and Chief Operating Officer of the National Italian American Foundation, where he served from 2012 to 2018 as the youngest president in its history. He serves as co-vice president for New York City of the Italian Sons and Daughters of America and on the boards of directors of the National Italian American Sports Hall of Fame in Chicago, as well as other Italian cultural boards. He was fundamental in the creation of Pope John Paul II Family Academy in Brooklyn, New York, serving as the Academy's general director and the director of the Madonna della Neve Foundation for many years. He is a Knight of Merit with Star of the Sacred Military Constantinian Order of St. George, one of the oldest orders of knighthood in the world. He serves as the U.S. Delegate for the Order and the other chivalric orders of the Royal House of Borbone of the Two Sicilies. He is also a Knight of the Order of Merit of Savoy and the Order of Saints Maurice and Lazarus. He serves as President of the Florida Panthers Foundation A native of Brooklyn, John traces his ancestry to the Vallo di Diano in the province of Salerno, Puglia, Basilicata, and his beloved Sicily. All right, folks, let's jump into this conversation. So another place that you and I really enjoyed, although we weren't there at the same time, has a kind of equivalent harshness, or maybe, I don't know, maybe I'd like to hear what you think, if it sounds like it was even worse than Alicudi, a place like Alicudi, is um, Matera. Matera is on the mainland, so now we're leaving Sicily, and we're on the mainland in the region of Basilicata. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, it is interesting to contrast the difficulties in Alicudi, you know, in a, in a relatively inhospitable place. And then you go to Matera, which is the region that my paternal line comes from in Basilicata. Basilicata. Okay. Um, probably statistically might still be the poorest region in Italy. I'm not quite sure the latest. It is because I actually looked it up. Uh, I remember when we were in Italy driving through and looking around, I, it, it still looks, you know, it, it still looks like it's down and out. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, right? It's like, it's the instep of the Italian boot, you know, at the heel, uh, I shouldn't say the, heel, the, 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 the instep, the sort of, uh, space between the toe of Calabria and the heel of Puglia. And it's very mountainous and very green and very underdeveloped and, um, beyond rural. I mean, it's, um, a kind of unchanged rocky, uh, verdant territory, and the city of Matera is probably one of the oldest continually inhabited sites in Italy, maybe in Europe. There are uh, findings in, in the city, in this, in this area called the Sassi, that mm-hmm. date uh, 
in inhabitation back to like 7000 BC. So you're talking yeah. like 9000 years of people living in the same place. So it's actually it's it's the third. I think it's the third what, what you just said, oldest continually continually inhabited um, area in the world. And wow. I think that it's just below, um, if I'm remembering correctly, Jericho and Aleppo. That's pretty crazy. Just really. wild. So as an anthropologist, like, you know, th- so much of uh, our, our society came out of the, the Levant. So to, to think out that far outside, really, I mean, it's not, you know, in, in a modern globe, Southern Italy doesn't seem that far outside of the the uh, Holy Land, if you will. Right, right. Uh, but the it, cradle it's of like civilization, fitting. but it is then. Yeah, yeah. It's fitting somehow, especially when you go to Matera and you see it. I mean, I've never been to Jericho or um, Aleppo, but um, I I do have an idea of, you know, their time frames and, yeah. and what they look like from photos. And it makes sense, right? It it kind of looks like an ancient biblical place. And in fact, um, Mel Gibson filmed uh, the last, uh, no. Uh, Passion of the Christ. Thank you. I was going to say the last temptation of Christ, but that's not him. Yeah. The, the Passion of the Christ. Yeah, that yeah. is. Mm-hmm. He filmed uh, He filmed it in Matera. Yeah. I think people in the audience that are unfamiliar might not even be able to picture, you know, the, the Matera has a beautiful modern, not modern, you know, ro- Rococo, uh, Baroque city, um, but that is all sort of overlooking a, um, a ravine of dwellings, cave dwellings that were inhabited from, um, you know, 7,000 years BC, uh, up until the 1950s when the Italian government forcibly extracted the population there. And like, you know, we've been talking so much about the immigrant experience and leaving a harsh place and all the risks that are involved. Imagine the people who lived, I mean, and, and you, I'm, you know, you and Drew and Angel got to see these cave dwellings, right? Now, some of them are re-inhabited now, um, but many people lived with their farm animals in the same cave. I mean, not much different than they would have lived thousands of years before uh, in less than sanitary conditions, obviously, but they were dragged kicking and screaming out, you know, that they were torn out of what any outside observer might see as uh, uh, barbaric living conditions but this was their home and it, and it was their families and their their ancestries for thousands upon thousands of years and that kind of attachment to place even beyond the circumstances i think it speaks a lot about what it means for people like us to be the descendants of people who who did leave their place that 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 break in your story you know it's interesting because with matera I, when obviously when i get like most people i get interested in something then i then i read about it and it was really hard to find and it still is like the answer to did they want to be forcibly removed or i mean i should rephrase that nobody wants to be forced to right. forcible, no, but, forcibly right. anything but were they okay with it you know did did the government move them to these quote unquote modern uh facilities modern homes and were they like yes finally windows running water sanitation or were they upset? And I, I actually just had to ask people that I met while we were there. And uh, they did say that they were they were not happy about having to leave. No, it's, I mean, it's interesting, right, to think about, like, again, I think it's the contrast in many ways with our American mindset. Right. I read this great article in Atlantic a few years ago that really 
evolved forward my thinking on society, on family, on kinship groups, on you know, kind of neo tribalism, if you will. And uh, it talked about the post war building boom here in the United States and how, you know, people don't realize, yes, all these suburbs sprang up in, you know, uh, Long Island and Pennsylvania and these places around the cities, California. And they were um, obviously desirable prefab housing in a lot of cases, but it wasn't necessarily a matter of people like waiting on pins and needles in the inner cities or in rural America to move to a little plot of land with the white picket fence where your neighbors, you know, t 10 houses next to you look the same. It was not this like pent up waiting for what they perceived as better. Really, it was a matter of a, a se severe housing crisis in the United States that had lasted for decades and then was sort of exploded by the returning GIs from the Second World War. So much of the population served. You had to be able to provide uh, with the GI Bill and stuff. So it was um, this article goes in to say how it changed our society and that now people who were leaving the cities and the rural communities, you know, if we take the example of our people, many people lived in a building like I was born in where you had six apartments and, you know, grandma was downstairs and your great aunt and then your uncle was in one. And so this sort of whole family in one building raising each other, multi-generations, everybody has a role. And then the homes around you were in some way your kin, right? And in the case of immigrant groups, it was usually people from the same area in rural America. It was people who might be uh, in the same church or, you know, you, you had this multi-generational kinship network. And then all of a sudden you have a whole generation of people and their newborn kids moving out to a place where everybody is on a horizontal. They're at the same point in their life. They're all raising their first kids. They're all right. sort of, you know, entering this new job market, whatnot. And it, and it sort of breaks a lot of society. And so this idea of like progress and progress in terms of how you live and where you live and convenience, you know, yeah, convenience is great, right? I'm sure people were lining up when the first refrigerators and dishwashers came out. But I think that that's a, an American construct in a lot of ways. I think there's something to be said about being contented in the place you live. And I, I you know, for all that I've been able to experience in my life, I sometimes come back to, did, was it better in, in the Right. Little apartment in Brooklyn where your family was always there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Because there's a big trade off for a, a level of success, a level of affluence, you know, something that supposedly we think, quote unquote, everybody is searching for. And and I think is what you're saying. So that our, our mentality thinks, OK, these people in Matera were living in caves with their farm animals. They were poor. There was disease. And they were super isolated naturally when the government came and said, we're going to move you somewhere again, quote unquote, better. They were thrilled, but, but they weren't. And, yeah. you know, the thing is, I know that there, are, I'm sure that there were people who did, did not want to leave Alicudi, but when we met, which I haven't talked about yet with listeners, but I'm going to, I'm going to write about it uh, in the upcoming Substack issues. When we met, the man that is essentially Drew's last living relative on the islands, he told us that his grandparents in the 80s sold that house, the ancestral house that we we talked about in last episode for, you know, like a handful of a thousand thousands of dollars, like crazy low amount. And he said nobody wanted anything to do with the place. Yeah. They just 
wanted to get rid of it. Like nobody wanted that. That was a case words in Italian. Nobody wanted anything to do with the place, you know? So the majority of people leaving there though, seem to be thrilled. So I do, I do find it really interesting. The story of Matera in that sense. And that people could somehow find a comfort level with that quality of life. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think it speaks to, I mean, there's, there's, there are other cases too in, uh, I could speak to Italian history and particularly Southern Italian history and modern history where, you know, places, ancient um, communities were devastated by earthquakes, even in the sixties, seventies and eighties, you know, I think like the village of Ruscino near my, grandparents town in uh, Campania and I, I don't know when the earthquake was but it was con- uh, deemed unstable and people were moved to like a you know, Roshino Nuovo new houses built in the 50s and uh, I knew people from that town who experienced that and told me how hard it was to leave even though the earthquake had devastated the place and like you know there's towns I think this town of Krakow it's called outside of Rome uh, built on a mountain that's barely able to sustain it it's a it's an ancient town and it, it too was deemed unsafe people were moved out and then slowly but surely they started to sneak back in and squat in their <laughs> old homes and then wow. yeah all these artists from different places around the world started to come in and squat and this the village was kind of reborn as this amazingly creative destination because people we're, we're resilient we're like cockroaches you know and mm. sometimes what you have is is what satisfies you and I think we here in this country, and it speaks this whole idea of like slowing down and pace, we're told over and over again that there's always something better. And I don't know, you know, you turn around as You're you get older and so you go, right. like, I remember one of my great mentors, it was like a third grandfather of me was George Rantazzo from the Italian American Sports Hall of Fame. Mm. And he um, he built this thing after this museum and, and nonprofit after Coming back from Vietnam, he was he was a boxing promoter and uh, a local Catholic school was going to close. And they asked him to help raise money. So he put together this boxing night and all these, you know, Rocky Marciano, these huge people came back. And then uh, he was a friend of Joe DiMaggio and DiMaggio said, oh, you know, you should expand it to all Italian American athletes. And so they did. And the thing took off. And, you know, every year it got bigger and bigger and all these huge names. And they raised a lot of money for different charities. And then they moved out of the little garage they were in and they built a real museum in the suburbs and then a bigger one. And then eventually in the 90s, they built this massive, beautiful, beautiful facility in Taylor Street in what was Chicago's Little Italy. And it became too much of an economic responsibility to mm. pay back this building. Mm. And they ended up having to close. And And I remember before George passed and he passed kind of suddenly, him and I spending uh, one of our many weekends together and driving around and him saying, you know, John, and maybe it was just a lot simpler when we were satisfied in a nice facility mm-hmm. in the suburbs where we could pay the bills and we could raise money. And, you know, really, honestly, the stress of the foundation and trying to save it always. And I think it I think it killed him. I think it, it factored into his heart attack. So, wow. you know, maybe maybe there is a lesson there that when you look back, uh, that, that constant hunger where you never feel full, it mm. might be artificial. Mm. And where, like, what better place than Italy, in a way, to to say, you know, to, to kind of express that, right? Like, you can keep your riches and your amenities. We have one another and an ancient way of life, and we're satisfied with it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's what I take from Matera. And, of course, now no. Matera has been, what, I think 2018, it was like the capital European culture. 
Um, yes. It's a major tourist destination. Many mm -hmm. of these saucy caves have been turned into five star resorts and spas. Yep. And, you know, people have have clearly rediscovered it and it gets a ton of tourism, which Basile Kata never got. Um, and I think, you know, Pat always says, Pat, our other co-host on the Italian American podcast and who I work with and travel with often, he always says the south of Italy has a great advantage because, yes, it's poor. But it doesn't have like a, a rusted out infrastructure like places like the Rust Belt do or other industrial places. It it has always been agrarian. It, it always sort of stayed agrarian and, and forgotten. And a lot of the things that people look for now, like slow food and mm. you know farm to table and local mm -hmm. heritage heirloom ingredients and uh, ancient practices and you know a lot of the stuff I'm sure you talk about with plenty of your guests have always been there and people are right. getting to discover it for the first time thanks to that's really well like said. This. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's really very well said. And, you know, another thing I, I had difficulty finding is just what kind of happened to the people after they were moved? Do you know anything about that? It's hard to kind of get only the, you know, the 10,000 mile view, which is they were moved to new housing in and around the city. Um, I, and I don't really know because, of course, it's Italy. So everything happens, especially building codes in Italy. They're, they're very poorly enforced. I do know people started to go back relatively quickly. Um, the Sassi were in some cases turned into museums and preserved, but now again, they are uh, legal to, to uh, inhabit. And I don't really know how many people went back and uh, reclaimed what was theirs, if they had the right to, or if they were portioned off to different parties. I, I'm not quite sure. I, I'd be an interesting study to track the families uh, yeah. that were forced to immigrate essentially out of their community. Yeah. I mean, I guess, Maybe nobody's done that, but I kept looking for that kind of info. Just, just, I wonder, you know, did they, did they take up different kinds of work? Did their families stay together? Did their traditions hold up? I mean, it's, it's a perfect case study for this kind of stuff. It's a testament to your uh, natural proclivity to as a storyteller, right? That you, you, you That's I, what I, I, I look at it as a historian <laughs> and I'm like, I got the answer. They, you know, they left and right, but like, you want to know the people's story and that's, that's I beautiful. Do. Damn. I want to know what happened to them. Yeah. I yeah. want to like hear them tell me it's true. Maybe I'll keep digging. But if anybody out there knows, um, you know who I should ask? I should ask Danielle O'Terry, actually. She yeah, would she probably, probably know would. because we were I was actually texting her from Matera because she she Danielle is a, a friend of ours who does uh, many historical tours in Italy. In fact, she was starting a tour in Naples just as I was leaving. Oh, wow. And yeah. And um she, I know that she knows a lot about Matera. And so I was texting her. I was telling her I'm going, I'm so excited. So she, she probably has a, might have some idea about that. Um, the caves, I just want people to know they're actually caves. Like they're, they're caves. Like people lived in caves and you can take tours of some reconstructed caves. I mean, they're not reconstructed because they're not rebuilt. They're there, but you know, um, some of the stuff of the original family's remains and maybe they've recreated a little bit where a bed was and so on. And you can walk in and you can see it's, it's modern ish furnishings. You know, there, there'll be like a dresser and a, and a bed frame with a mattress. Yeah. And, it's not Neanderthal caves. You know what right, I mean? Right. Exactly. It, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, if it furniture in some cases, they did have lighting wired in, you know, hanging, uh, light bulbs and things like that, but it's um, no windows, no windows, no, 
I windows. mean, that's a rough way to live. No windows. No, no it is. It's yeah. Yeah. Even when we were in Alicudi in the Airbnb that we stayed in, I was in a room that didn't have windows. It had the door out. Uh, we were in a house built into the rock and yep. uh, it had two little like porthole windows up top to, to let breeze in with screens, which is miraculous in Italy to find screens. Oh, I didn't even yeah. know that. They yeah, I, screens, huh? I, they did. Yeah, I, I think that lucky was, uh, guy. <laughs> I, I don't really hit the jackpot, but it is true. Like, you you know, you even in the day, right? Like when you've got the the curtain closed so you don't get bugs and stuff and you're you're isolated in a in a in a very uh soundproof rock environment it's it is very unique experience yeah so and then eventually um i just want people to know what happened was uh, carlo levy an italian writer one of wrote one of my actually favorite books called uh christ stopped at eboli and he so when when um, Mussolini wanted to ban dissidents in the north, basically, you know, these artists, these intellectuals who are anti-fascists, he would actually he would send them to the south of Italy. I don't know if people know that, but that was their exile. They would be exiled, basically, and they would be sent down to these places like Matera. Or, yeah. or places near them, very remote places like Basilicata, Calabria, very, very remote, very isolated. And, a, and literally the same country, but a world away from the Milan or the Rome of their, you know, maybe the work that they were doing. And so Carlo Levi was one of these people that Mussolini sent into exile. And he gets sent into a town uh, near Matera. First, I thought it was Matera, but it wasn't. It was near it. And he calls it, you know, he makes up a name. But basically, you have to imagine this. He's He was a doctor. He was a painter. He was a writer and very sophisticated, very well educated. And then he gets dropped into a, a town like that, an area like this. And he, he he's just the way that people lived, both their environment, their beliefs, their superstitions, their lack of medical access, the things that they did in lieu of that lack of medical access. It just was, it must've been so mind blowing for him. And he yeah. wrote, right. He wrote this beautiful book that I recommend. I, I've talked about it many times before, but I recommend every one of you read. And when that was published, it was a, actually a, a hit and people who did not know that people were living like this in the South of Italy suddenly knew and it became known like a scandal became called they uh, came to be called the shame of Italy. Yeah. And right. And so Mussolini went in and uh, it was Mussolini. Yes. I, it, it, they were, they were forcibly taken out in the fifties. So post Mussolini, but not many. Oh, years okay. Post. My bad. Yeah. Okay. So then they, yeah. So in order to kind of fix it, you know, they did what governments often do, which is they, they solved it their own way, which really didn't please the people necessarily. I mean, we're experiencing stuff like that now, right? Like, look at the hurricane that just came through South Florida. I was reading yeah. an article about like, um, uh, I'm going to forget what city it is um, on the west coast of Florida that was built in the 60s on poorly reclaimed swampland. Um, maybe not, it's not Fort Myers, it's somewhere near there. And it was sort of a like a, a huckster developer who bought this land cheap, sold it to people, at a premium and you know for them it was great right it was like this blue collar um, beachside paradise where everybody had um, 
property on these artificially mm. created canals mm. and but it's, it's it's you know very very poor land and it, it really it, you know environmentally shouldn't be lived on particularly in the concentration that it is and so this article was saying like you know it's a, it's a place that was built in, in all the wrong ways when it was built and we should just not rebuild it people should move to you know play but i thought to myself you know here's a lot of families it was affordable compared to the rest of florida's waterfront property and how are you going to tell these people to give up their life and their community and not rebuild you know again we 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 tend to stick to stuff yep it's it's well said so on that note we're gonna travel out of basilicata we're gonna get a little further north and go to uh, one of our favorite areas, which is Campania, which is mm-hmm. where my people are from. John, I, right now I'm blanking. You're from, you have ancestors in Campania? I'm blanking right now. Yeah, no, I do. Okay. My, my my dad's both, my dad's mom's family has been in Campania forever outside of Salerno. And my right. dad's- Okay, that's right. Valdidiano yeah, Valdi, is the name of the valley. Valdidiano, right. And my, my dad's father was born in Campania and immigrated from there in the town next to my grandmother's and his mother came from Caserta in Campania, mm. but, but his father came from Basilicata. I was just, I actually ran into a cousin of mine last night, a, my dad's cousin's son, who I never see. I saw him at an Italian American event. And uh, we were talking about that. It's like the great mystery I can't solve is how my great grandparents back then in the 1910s met from two different parts of Italy, ended up in a third different, mm. you know, completely tiny little village in the middle of nowhere. How did they end up there and start their family there before they immigrated? We don't know. That is an interesting question because that didn't happen all the time. No, it's uncommon. Yeah. Yeah. Look, my parents, for instance, then and much later than 1910 met. And I mean, their their towns are just about, I don't know, 10 minutes away, 15 minutes away from each other. A little more than 10 minutes, 15 minutes away. But you know what? In those days, it was kind of far. Nobody had nobody had cars. So it is interesting how those those pieces fall into place. But in any event. Both of us have an ancestry family um, in Campania, and my family is from about 40, 40 minutes uh, south of Napoli, Naples, the jewel of Campania, along with the Amalfi Coast. Would you would you agree with that sentiment? Yeah, it depends on how you define a jewel, I guess. If you're a, <laughs> a one-time tourist, I think you might give it to Capri or Positano, but if you're a, right. a cultural geek like us, I think Naples offers... So, so much. And it's the capital of the South. It, you know, was the capital of the South for a thousand years. Yes. I'm going to, I'm going to link to, hopefully I'll remember to do this, to the Italian American podcast episodes that we did with John and Pat when, um, before actually everybody had come on board as hosts, when it was just Anthony and I, we did a series that I think all of us are still extremely proud of. And we get a lot of, we still get feedback on, on them. And it was a series where I learned tons from you and Pat. I mean, I continue to, of course, but I learned so much that I didn't know about Southern Italy and about Naples uh, in particular. And uh, mainly that once upon a time, not terribly long ago in the long, long arc of history, Sicily and Southern Italy had been a, a United Kingdom called the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies. Yeah. Yeah, and it was a time where they flourished. Yeah, right. I mean, you're you're talking about the approach to Naples, and uh, I think a lot of non-Italians and a lot of Italian Americans have never been there, and and don't even put it on their travel radar, unfortunately, because of its sort of 
hectic nature, which I think is a beautiful part of it. But in 1856, at the uh, World Exposition in Paris, as only the French could do, they kind of ranked uh, the, the industrial nations of the world and the industrial cities of the world. And uh, Naples finished third behind, of course, Paris came in first, <laughs> and then London, and then, then Naples. So, you know, right. first railroad in Italy, first street lamps in Italy, first telegraph wire, first uh, suspension bridge, uh, every, you know, so much of the modern uh, modern development. The first public hospital, uh, it, it was all uh, in Naples. And, you know, it was, it was a, a global capital. It was a global capital. And that really, and John, you're the historian, especially in this topic. So anything I say, correct me if I'm wrong. Sure, yeah. From, yeah, from there, it really... Be, began it's it's that began to change and it began to decline when it after unification because the seat of power the seat of everything switched to the north to piedmont yes yeah well yeah for first it switched to piedmont then to florence then 10 years later to rome and that was a, a very political consideration much like we experienced here in this country after the american revolution right you think about the first uh, capitals switching kind of back and forth between right. Philadelphia and then New York. And of course, the southern states started to say, well, wait a minute, you know, it, it shouldn't be that far. So Washington, District of Columbia is created as a uh, as are many capitals, right? Brasilia right. in Brazil, built out of the middle of nowhere in the jungle, all from scratch. Uh, Myanmar, they just built a new capital um, that the military junta there. And, and, you know, this idea of the cap, the prestige that comes with the capital city, but also the economics that come with it, you know, I mean, it's just it's a big engine of of economics to have the functions and the organs of government and education. And, you know, particularly in the South, you know, you talk about a season on slowing down the beauty of southern Italy, I guess, uh, both a pain and a, and, a, and a profit is that because of the way the territory is and its mountainous, rugged nature, in so many cases, it's much easier to travel by water around the coast than it is to travel through lands. So, you know, two, two towns like your parents might be today with the modern-ish highway 15, 20 minutes apart, but um, they may not have had a, a paved road until the 30s or 40s or 50s, mm. to, you know. So it was easier sometimes to communicate with places along the coast than even uh, in the interior. And so in a country like that, what tended to happen was the major coastal cities were the engines of everything and where the government had its, its best uh, practices, best contributions, best fingerprints. And then much of the administration of the interior was sort of relegated to uh, their local leadership and primarily the Catholic Church. So Naples, uh, in many ways, you can write much of the history of that kingdom by writing the history of Naples because it's where everything went on. So it was a bustling, largest uh, city on the Italian peninsula uh, at unification. I think now it's the third largest and uh, yeah, it, it 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 certainly decreased when it lost its uh, its own independent status as a as an independent capital. Yeah, right. And this is a slightly an aside, but only slightly. I've been meaning to tell you since since Italy. I wanted to text you when I was in Italy. We when we were in Matera and Basilicata, we went. I say Basilicata like an American Basilicata, <laughs> like a New Yorker Basilicata. Yeah. We Basilicata. were in Basilicata. We um. <laughs> We were walking in the streets and we went to the piazza, the name of which I'm, I'm bad at remembering things like that. I don't remember. And we turn a corner and we see all these people standing around. And in this kind of little nook is this 
band and it's it's like a franciscan monk in full gear playing the guitar and three or four other guys also playing we had there was like tambourine two guitars i think there was even a drum just street players and they were terrific and they were playing all of these old traditional songs like at one point somebody was like oh solda mio and they just like played it real quick to kind of like mm. get it out of the way <laughs> and then went back to a lot of the songs i didn't really know because i think they might have been regional to Bas- uh, basilicata but sure. for a few thrown in there of course were songs from naples nabledan songs you might know this song but i was listening to one and caught at one point they were singing and it was a kind of a, you know this great energy like picture like a ragtag street band that sounds really good and the line was something like a um i'll try and say it in dialect no which me you don't know it okay no, i don't, don't either it. but i thought maybe you know it and it was like this kind of rallying cry and to translate like the energy with which he sang it was basically in the first ones will kick out or the piedmontese yeah that's amazing actually I, i've been I, meaning to tell you that for months yeah yeah we're gonna have to try to google that and see i mean that that's another interesting part of the history of the south really is like you know um the unification was not an easy one, even right. after Garibaldi's conquest and, and handing it over to the Piedmontese royal family, which became the Italian royal family. And in the history books, they'll describe the subsequent 10 years as a period of brigandage, which, you know, in in historiography usually means like um, uh, criminality, right? Mm-hmm. Dis- disorganized criminality. And uh, that's a very conscious effort on the part of the Italian state over the last 150 years to paint this idea that, you know, this, this lawless South took 10 years for the North to civilize. But in reality, what brigandage really was, was a lot of people who decided to take to the mountains and fight for their independence and freedom of their homeland. And and that's evidenced by the fact that no matter what the history books would say up until recent uh, research, you're finding a lot now that the, the actual leadership of these um, these bands of, of freedom fighters were either conscripted men or um, officers in the Royal Bourbon Army who decided mm. not to take the offer of a transfer of commission into the new Italian forces. And were like, no, we're going up in the mountains and fighting for our freedom. And it lasted 10 mm. years and they had to come down right. and absolutely. I mean, they just they eliminated multiple towns of all the people killed them. There were. Um, some of the world's earliest concentration camps in the South to, to help uh, shut down this uh, civil war that was an undeclared civil war. I mean, it's to kick out the Piedmontese. There's still a museum in Piedmont, and I'm going to draw a blank on the name where you can actually go and see the preserved heads and skulls of a lot of these quote unquote brigands or you'd say freedom fighters that were then studied to, to study the eugenical difference between the North oh, and the boy. South. And they're still on display wow. there. Yeah, I amazing. believe it. I believe so it. I, I can that see why amazing. the monk would say, let's kick out the Piedmontese. They, they also ex- repressed the church, too, when they came down. So. Mm, OK, OK. I knew. I mean, I just caught it from all this history I've learned, you know, from you and Pat and then read on my own. I caught that line and as they, I was like, this is a fight song. This yeah. is a this is a song of rebellion yeah. from the South. And they sang it like that. It was a really, really cool moment to be in a place like Basilicata and and hear that 
So that should let listeners know, basically, as we circle back to talk a little bit about Naples, why Naples is the way Naples is. <laughs> you know, it's funny. You, I, I do want to add before you go back to Naples on this this great aside. Is it first of all? I, yeah, I bet you it is a song that was contemporary to the that brigandage movement. Mm. Uh, and secondly, Basilicata was a hotbed of resistance, and I was able to. I was there on a trip to both Naples and Matera years ago, and uh, with Pat, of course, and got to for the first time ever see my great grandfather's village because I always knew ah. family from Campania. So he took me to the village and we met some of these great guys and, and the guy that we met uh, and we were traveling with the, the princess of the two Sicilies, the, the royal family right. that was deposed that still goes back and runs a lot of nonprofits there and, and does a lot of good. And uh, these guys were dedicated to the bourbon history and the princess. And so being with them, they took an interest in us. And they found out I was from Basilicata. So about two weeks later, one of them, who was a genealogist, sent me an amazing set of documents on my family, which I never had, one of which uh, actually was the military records of a distant mm. relation of mine who was an officer in the Bourbon Army and did decide not to take the offer to join the Italian Army and did go in the mountains and did fight. And it was amazing. so amazing for me to think, you know, all these feelings that I have and all of this history that I've studied and all this passion that I have for it. And to think I had an ancestor who uh, was able to live that decision. And, you know, you wonder if there's something in that, right? That, that connection. Oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. I think if all of us could know more stories like that about our ancestors, our own character and our own behavior, our own lives, our very lives, I think, would be illuminated. Yeah. Like, you know, to 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 an insane degree. I remember Anthony, of course, uh, Anthony Fasano, who I began the Italian American podcast with. He he found out about I think it was his great grandfather was basically, you know, an entrepreneur. He was a junk seller. He he had like a I forget what job he was doing. And then he supposedly left it and he started a business where I guess back in the day you would go around either collecting people's junk. I can't really remember like called or Mungo. selling them junk. I don't remember. Yeah. It's called Mongo, Mongo, Mongo dealership. My, my great grandfather okay. did it as well. And it's, you know, junk, scrap metal, repairing junk, pulling out yeah. brass yeah. pipes and yeah. Knowing like doing a little bit of everything. You're kind of, you, and that's Anthony. I mean, that's yeah. Anthony. Anthony is like a hustler. Like he, Anthony was, he's an engineer. He had a very, tried and true career path and then left it. And his family was like, what are you doing? You're crazy. And, and he was like, it just didn't suit him. And then for him, it was such a validation to hear this story about this ancestor. It, he, he just thought I'm just, that's in me. I yeah. have that streak. And I don't think it's an accident at all that you had somebody in your line. So passionate about the, the kingdom of the two Sicilies to like go and, and fight this yeah. occupying army, you know, and then here you are. Yeah, I mean, you're amazing. not necessarily fighting, but you are. I mean, in I your own way, in a modern we way. Are. Yeah, we're doing the Intellectually, best we can. Intellectually, we are. Yeah. We are, though. And, and I know we are because we get a lot of feedback from people who write us to say, like, I didn't know this stuff. And learning this, it just changes how you understand who you are and who your family is. And what they've been through and why your character is the way it is. It's flaws, it's strengths, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's the thing about all this stuff. And I think I've learned a lot of this from you 
around blood memory and ancestral memory and ancestral trauma. And I'm, a, a, I'm no scientist, but I'm a big believer in it. And, you know, uh, I think it becomes a, a matter of gradation, right? Like grade one is the entry point of like going where your family came from. And that's, you know, my first trip to Italy was to Venice. And even then, which I know Venetian in me and I'm, right. you know, my little mountain towns couldn't be more any different than Venice. But uh, you just feel like, OK, this is like I belong. This is familiar. The 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 sounds, the way the language, mm. the smells, the, the behaviors, because there is sort of that, you know, great pan Italianism. And then it's like the next level is to go to where your family came from as a town. And like Drew got to go to right. the house. And but then there's a whole nother level that you can experience when it's in the context of understanding the history the whys god yep. willing you can tie your own story to it in these r rare um sparks of of discovery like we're talking about here but you know like a, you're talking about going to naples right and that's why this conversation is so meandering because so yeah. much of it is the context <laughs> of yeah but it's, it's it's the context <laughs> of understanding like if you yeah. are a person born out of this diaspora what happened in naples was uh, you know what they say like uh, uh naples sneeze naples sneezes and and the rest of southern mm -hmm. italy gets a cold right like it was mm -hmm. it was the the pinnacle of the pyramid so what happened there and to experience the change there and, and understand it not just approach the city as if it sprouted out of the ground yesterday right it gives you a context as to why your family left what what things were in context in a different time and uh yeah it gives you a deeper understanding of who you are and I think for, for my listeners here who are not Southern Italian or not Italian at all, I just, what I'm hoping by us diving into this is that you get a, a context for yourself or whatever your ancestry is to get to that level where understanding the historical events does lead you to understanding your ancestors, which leads you to understanding you, yeah. you know, there's there's that theory that is it string theory about the butterfly, the butterfly, what is that? Flutters its effect. wings yeah. and it, it like ripples through the world, basically yes, the universe. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, that's what the history John and I were just talking about in our case, that was what happened. It's when Naples starts to no longer be the capital, this whole ripple effect occurs that, that finally leads to me sitting here in New York in 2022. Yeah, yeah, completely. And, and right? you know, it's funny you talk about like uh, you know, obviously you and I talk about everything as as compadre and you know, like family. But then when we get on our show, we talk about Italian stuff. And then to, the great thing to come here is to, is to take. I always like the idea that you can use these opportunities to take the lens of what we've studied so passionately, which is our heritage, to, to turn it to other people. And I, yep, you know, it's it's a hot button topic, but. I, I like to think of myself as a considerate person in the sense that I, I like to consider things. I like to think about things. And sure. mm -hmm. in the wake of George Floyd's killing, uh, I was struggling to really kind of wrap my head around the debate between black lives matter, all lives matter. What does this mean? How do you approach, especially as a person who's not black. Right. And so I decided I, I was, I don't know how I ended up. I was on YouTube and I started watching Henry Louis Gates, the, who do you think you are? Um, mm. special series that he did with African-Americans in the United States, which, you know, as a person who has had to work to discover his own heritage, right? Because 
people would think you're Italian, you know, you're Italian, but like I'm the majority of people you ask say, Oh, my family came from, I think Naples. Well, that right. might've been the port they left from, but you know, that sure. that's, that doesn't give you much. So actually our communities really rebuilding these genealogies is not something yes. that most people had, nope. particularly the, the, the 4 million plus who came before 1920, you know, and then were cut off by the change in, in immigration law here mm-hmm. and couldn't go back. So I'm not saying anything even akin to the experience of coming over as chattel slaves, but the point being the genealogy is, is an effort, right? And less of an effort than African-Americans obviously have to go through. But anyway, I'm watching the series and somehow YouTube's algorithm feeds me a BBC um, news piece on like 12 African-Americans who relocated to Ghana permanently. And I can remember you telling me this. Yeah. yeah. And it was it was absolutely life changing for me because, you know, you try to have empathy, but you really can't have empathy unless you can relate. You can have sympathy and sympathy sometimes doesn't go as far. So uh, I'm thinking for days and days and days about everything that's going on in our country and, and the, the massive problems we have around race and history. And and I see this little special and I'm fascinated by it because, you know, with modern uh, ancestry uh, DNA studies and things like that. You can much closer pinpoint where your family was from in a lot of cases, uh, as, as everybody knows. But they were interviewing these people who had gone over on a like a work study program. Some had gone as tourists and for whatever different reasons, they decided to stay. And one woman summed it up really amazingly. She said, I decided two days into my trip that I was going to move here because it was the first time in my life that I went out from the door in the morning and I wasn't a black woman. I was just a woman. And here mm-hmm. I was basically in my own mm-hmm. safety net. Right. And so she decided to go there and there's this expat community that sprung up and uh, in, uh, in Ghana and, and obviously Ghana is a, a very dynamically developing country. So there's a lot of excitement and fashion and art and whatnot. And that's what stood with me because I remember when I landed in Venice, my family had left our neighborhood when I was like four and a half, moved to a town in New Jersey. I don't know how we found a town in New Jersey that had no other Italians, but it really had no other Italians or felt like no other Italians. because I didn't know mm-hmm. any other Italians. And I got, frankly, picked on for it. And, you know, I, I didn't know what the word mafia was until kids in my school asked me if my dad was the mafia. I had to ask him what the heck this word means. And it, I felt like an outsider and it, and it defined me and it made me passionate about this stuff. And when I got off the train into Venice, the first time I ever went as a 12 year old, um, within a couple of hours, I thought I belong here. This is like, Mm. I, whatever I've been cut off from is here. And now Mm -hmm. after all these years, I've learned, you know, of course, Venice, so much different than where my family comes from. But I think it's, it's the context of every person that's in the United States, with the exception of the indigenous peoples, that there's something in your story in in understanding a, a, a part or as much as you can of where yeah. it began. You, you have yeah. to do that with a rigor, with the real intellectual rigor. That's right. That's right. Like very quickly. So we actually do get to talk about Naples. Mm. <laughs> we keep going in different directions. I mean, it's great. I'm loving it. But um, for instance, if you're Irish of Irish ancestry, I read uh, Thomas Lynch's book, We Irish and Americans. Great book. Then he came on the show. One of the best shows I've done. Loved the conversation with him. And in his book, I came to a point where he says that his grandfather, I think it was, whenever somebody might mention the Irish 
uh, famine, he would say, no, no, no. You mean the Irish starvation mm. and would launch like it was they were really serious. He was very serious about that. They understand it was not a famine. It was a starvation. But if you're Irish American, my guess is you've been spending all your life calling it the famine. Yeah. And the famine makes it sound like this natural event. God, you know, the elements, the weather, when really, if you dig into your the history, you learn that, in fact, Ireland had plenty of food. Yeah. Even with right, even with the the potato crop being blighted, what happened instead was that the people in charge, what I I think at that time, of course, would have been Britain, yeah. were taking the food and shipping it overseas. So they yeah. were just not feeding the Irish public, so people just were dying. But there was food, so that's if you're of Irish ancestry, and your family left Ireland, as we like to say, kind of romantically, you know, for a better life. Well, no, they left because they were being starved. So that's a huge difference. And I and I just feel like that would illuminate my life. I mean, it illuminated for me. I was just like, get out of here. I didn't know that. And that is a lot like what's happened to us as Southern Italians, right? You don't, you don't know the story. So you think, oh, they were just kind of poor. No, it was different than that. There are, there are real historical reasons. Um, and and for us as Southern Italians, Naples is, is a huge part, obviously, is a huge character in this whole story. And what I like, I just actually talked about this on Instagram yesterday. When you hear about Naples, especially when I was younger, because I do feel like Naples might have been more of a mess back then. It was always talked about negatively. You didn't want to yeah. go to Naples. Be careful in Naples. Don't wear your gold in Naples. Don't go to Naples. Don't even step foot there. But it's dirty. It's ugly. It's pointless. And I, I told a story yesterday on Instagram about we were um, at my brother's beach house this summer. My niece had some of her friends there. And she this lovely friend, Italian-American girl, so smart, so sweet. And we started talking. And, you know, obviously it came out that I'm super involved in Italian American issues and, uh, and culture. And we were going to Italy and she said, uh, we talked a little bit about where her family was from and they're from Campania near Naples. And she said, yeah, I, my grandparents came from there. And when I told my father, I told my father, I want to go, I want to go see that area. I want to go see Naples. And he told her, no, you don't where we're from is the armpit of Italy. Mm. Happens all the time. It was like, and like everyone in the room, like all my family who obviously know me well by now, I was like, the, the record just stopped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they were like, here she goes. Like, oh, honey. Okay, sit down. And I had to like, you know, and I did. I told her everything we've been talking about. It happens all the time. And if you grow up and even as an adult continue to think that your origins are the armpit of the country within which they reside, when really they have this incredibly regal history, you know, your framework for who you are and who your ancestors are is is completely different. Yeah, I, I think it's part of the trade off of immigration. Right. And it's something I'm sensitive to when we talk about immigration today, which is like. I think. Either I don't even know if it's a systemic expectation, I don't know if it's imposed from above or it's like sort of the the actual immigrant and then the the first generation after has to consciously or subconsciously force themselves to swallow this pill of like 
everything we left was terrible because mm. if you don't it's got to be heartbreaking yeah right like almost like you, a defense mechanism yeah for survival. it's almost like a protection right to say like yeah. eh, it was terrible there and you know why would we ever want to go back and you know and not, nobody could eat and nobody does it and yeah in many cases the economic situations like you know whether it was a, a potato famine or a potato or, or a, a systematic starvation or in the case of southern italy you know whether it was because of the uh, unification lopsided unification or not the the situation was terrible and it, it was right. something that forced a lot of people out because they couldn't survive they couldn't eat so yeah that that's true but that's not to say the place is terrible and the place exactly main qualities you right know? Right. Or it was like innately that way. You right, know, I exactly. feel like I grew up, yeah. right? I think I grew up thinking it was just an innately that kind of place. And then you learn, no, there there were factors put in play. There were powers that be that led to this. And so Naples gets, I want to just clear, like, I want to just tell the truth and also just like clear up so that we kind of encourage people to, visit, whether they're of Italian ancestry or not, to kind of reconsider visiting a place like that. Um, Naples, my favorite quote about Naples is the Umberto Eco quote, where he says, uh, uh, basically translated something like Naples without Italy would more or less remain Naples, but Italy without Naples wouldn't be Italy. Yeah, very true. Yep. For for so so many reasons. For so many reasons. And the one that always, when I hear that quote or read it, whatever sticks out to me is this Naples is kind of being this self-contained universe yes, it is. <laughs> of its own. Right. And it, it's, it's, it's like its own planet in the middle of Italy. And when you go to this planet, it has its own rules. It ha- has its own pace. It has its own energy. And there is no point in bringing your preconceptions, your judgments, your way of being to it. And in fact, when I first got to Naples this time, this trip, I texted you because I was tired. I have been traveling a long time. I was like, we should have just left and gone home from Sicily. At that point, I was like really drained. And I texted you and I was like, Naples, yay or nay? <laughs> I mean, Naples, I hate it here. What am I doing here? I don't think I said I hate it, but I something along the lines of like, Ugh, I remember it so differently. Like the last time I was here and then like two days later, I was texting you like, oh yeah, I saw this and like, this was beautiful. And then I remembered why I love the city so much, but because I got there and cranky, rigid Dolores was, yeah. you know, had arrived. <laughs> you, you, you know, you and I compliment each other in a lot of ways, but you have more of a, um, you have a dour uh, I don't say dour. Dower's the wrong word. You've got a <laughs> like a slightly self-defeatist streak that yeah. like as soon as you're because you're a big expectations person. Pat and, and I. Not, <laughs> yeah, you and Pat. Oh, Pat no, Pat's just negative. Pat's just a negative, <laughs> miserable negative person. I t- and he we talk about that constantly. But you have this like expectations, things go off and then you're like totally thrown off and you're tense about it. And, and you're like, I'm out. And and I'm much more reactive yeah. and and like i guess my brain you is slow better I, I must have less brain capacity than you but like mm-hmm. i i'm i can't get that far ahead so i remember you texting me and i think it was the first time in a long time i pushed you back i'm like stop stop this you shut did. up <laughs> yeah like just just go go i think i said like go do these three things and it'll re-energize yep. you and like yep. you know naples is is a is a different place it's a very unique place I was at an event last night for an Italian American doctors group. And one of the um, 
one of the participants was from Naples and uh, very passionate about it. And we were talking about Naples and I said, the best way I could describe Naples, especially in a room full of doctors, it's like those models that doctors learn on of the human body without the skin on it. Like everything is inside out, mm-hmm, right? Because mm-hmm, it, it's such mm-hmm. an old city. The streets are so narrow. It's it's it's, it's you know it's dark because it's narrow streets and it's built mm-hmm. into a natural yep. um, natural uh, amphitheater, if you will, around the the bay. Vesuvius is looming, so people live so much more out in in society. It's so much more on the street, so much more activity. Yep. So it's an inside out city in a lot of ways, and and it, it does feel like that kind of model of the body where yeah. you can see the sinews and the nerves and the yeah, muscle structure and you know it's what it is that's Naples it's just raw it is it's raw it, it's a place where li- life is still happening and I I my my husband who was driving through Naples and Naples much like Palermo is very well known for being an extremely difficult place to drive in <laughs> yeah um, even like our relatives who we, <laughs> we went and saw a, a close family friend, his brother, he was at his brother's house and we sat with them for a while. He was telling me that he drove a bus in Naples for like 50 years. Mamma mia. And even he was saying to me, Naples, they drive like crazy. It's insane. They are nuts. You have no idea, no idea the things that I saw but it's the most beautiful city in the world. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Which is what, Na- how everybody will talk about Naples. Naples is crazy. It is. It, it is, is crazy. It, it's, it's cacophonous. It, it's, um, it's so permanent. And I mean, you know, like we talk yeah. about Matera being 9,000 years of, of uh, habitation, but you know, don't forget Naples is called Neapolis because it's the Greek new city. Mm. Uh, mm. It, it goes back to, to the Greek period as well in this amazing bay where the the visual of it with the, the volcano anchoring one corner, it just overwhelms you. And, yeah. you know, I could think of like a, a picture that always stays in my head of Naples is Pat and I were there for a work trip and he, we had a day off and so he wanted to go build his Neapolitan nativity scene, the Presepio right, collection. The Presepio. He's got a massive one, and that's a big piece of Neapolitan culture. And yep. some people's Presepio family, Presepios, have so many pieces. They, they're, the Neapolitan structure is built to basically put the birth of the Savior uh, in a manger in the middle of basically Naples, right? A, right. <laughs> Bethlehem reimagined as Naples with people selling pasta. And so it's all these mm-hmm. figures. And it's a it's a big art form, and it's uh, there's a street called San Gregorio Armeno where every manufacturer handmade um, nativity pieces sells there. So Pat wanted to go, and he's got a massive collection. Some people, some families take up a whole room uh, at Christmas time, and so we spent the day there. And um, they know him because he goes and buys like ten of each figure and gives them to everybody. So he's like, you know, it's like going with the mayor. And uh, we're in one of the first stores we stop in and the proprietor knows he's going to make a big sale on Pat. And he says, uh, you know, can I, can I offer you cafe? Can I get you coffee? So he's okay, sure. And so he gets like his, maybe his son, his nephew, who's working in the back and he sends him to a local cafe and they, they ordered the coffee. And one of the waiters from the cafe brings it through the street. Mm-hmm. Now this is like November, right before Christmas, the street is packed. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, 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 you can't see uh, a piece of, stone on the street itself for the heads and bodies and i see this like arm pop up in a, in a beautiful uh french cuff sleeve 
and there's this little tray with tiny plastic espresso cups, six of them, whatever it was, and a, a plastic like dome on top. And, and it's maneuvering. So it's like a it's like Fantasia from Walt Disney. Mm-hmm. You can just hear I a soundtrack it. as yep. this tray. All you see is an arm the in the tray. And I can see yeah, it. Mm-hmm. Maneuvering in this valley because it's, it's all shadows and uh, hanging laundry and all these people screaming. And and here's this tray kind of like dancing and maneuvering. Yep. And, and the, the yep. dome makes it look like a ballerina's dress. Wow. And it makes its way to us. And it's this little kid, you know, this tiny, skinny, scrawny kid with a few mustache hairs. And he, maybe he was 13. And uh, he brought us the coffee. And I thought like that dome is the spirit of Naples just, mm, you know, above the yep. cacophony, above the crowds, just sort of yep. doing its own little navigating, doing dance. its own thing. Yeah. yeah. Beautifully making its way. Yeah. Well, I brought up the driving because Drew was, Drew was fine. And he's like, I, I actually love driving here. He's like, do you know what it is? He's like, people still, he actually, he said, men still drive like men here. Yeah. So that was what I was saying. Might offend people. I don't know. I don't know why anymore, but uh, <laughs> men still drive like men here like it's just and that is part of the energy so there's also a feminine energy right but there's that the energy there is like you are alive yeah. drive yeah you are like be present put your phone down don't text you're not like you know fiddling with the television screen in your car you drive like a beating pumping furious heart right and like, and that he loved, you know, we, he loved that. And his, what he was basically saying was like, people drive here like they're still alive. Well, that's the most famous quote of all about Naples. I don't even know where it comes from. It's Vida Napoli poi morire, see Naples yes. and then die. Yep. And pe- mm-hmm. people, people, of course, because it's got such a horrible PR reputation, people think it means you're going to go to Naples and you're going to get killed. But no, it means see Naples and then die because you can't see anything else that's going to be as alive. That right. you'll, you'll never feel as electric and turned on. And I mean, if I plenty of places exactly i love in right. italy but like yeah it's a raw society and it's it's its own society and it's um even in a globalized world it's got so much to make it distinct and it, it actually really saddens me because even the neapolitans themselves will tell you not to come right and and maybe they're yeah, oh yeah keeping it oh, themselves yeah. but they, they they are the worst pr agents in the world for their own city but like I I loved when you text me back and you were like, ah, now I remember why I love Naples. And I love when <laughs> I send people or I lead tours and people are seeing it for the first time. And they're like, I was afraid to come here. And right. now I love it because it is so rich and it has so many levels of history and culture and art and yep. music and food. And it's just but it's hidden. You got to dig. You got to dig through the, the, the you do have to dig. And I was in no mood when I arrived. <laughs> of course. Dig. Yeah, I could see that's that. That's exactly what it was. And then I, you know, I rested a couple nights and then I was like, okay. And I, I went out and remembered the, the areas that I love. I mean, Spacanopoli is very touristy, but to me, that area is so much fun. Yeah. And I, I know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you get a really good sense of this kind of ancient part of Naples, this really old part without venturing into parts that would be dangerous for you to be. Yeah. In. Yeah. There, I mean, look, there are parts of the city. That makes that sense. Are, yeah. <laughs> there, there are parts of Naples, like any city that are dangerous. Right. Um, that's, that's not surprising, particularly in a large metropolis with so many uh, uh, infrastructural limitations um, and so much poverty, frankly, but I was just going to say, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just still, it still suffers quite a bit, yep. but I think that, you know, Shvakanopoli, which means the 
the street, it's named after the street that Spaka splits Naples, the mm-hmm. street that runs through the center. Much of the, that area is still built on essentially the Greek grid. You know, I mean, this is mm. city as it's been, I mean, it's obviously not Greek buildings, but as it's been for quite a, a long time um, in an era before cars and, you know, sanitation yep. and all these things. So, yeah, you get an amazing sense of the place and these alleyways and the stairwells and that undulate. And uh, it's just, I, I, highly recommend to your audience you know it, it breaks my heart when i see people because look it, travel is for better or worse you can do it reasonably but it is expensive and people save up money they really it's an amazing destination that that we're so blessed to be a part of because so many people in the world who have no italian heritage are dying to go there and it's right. great to see rome and florence and venice and you should but at the same time if you want to a save a little bit of money and b do something unique and different. That's not an Instagram, you know, a hunting trip at which you can Instagram your life away in Naples. Cause it's beautiful, but like it is a fantastic place. You don't have to go to Positano and uh, Amalfi. They're, they're lovely too, but Positano and Amalfi are like, um, I don't want to insult any, you know, small place in, in all America, our caveats it, before we yeah speak. I know right I, I, where, who am I gonna who am I gonna upset now but you know they're, they're Sheboygan compared to New York you know Naples is Naples and sure. you, you you can do so much more there you can live so much because these other places are stage sets for you know tourists tourists make up 80 percent of the population in the high season Naples they right. don't, I don't know if they make up eight percent of the population yeah and Naples even in the touristy sections you the city still runs over you like it, no, you it doesn't it. it doesn't give way for you be, no. just because you're there spending money. No, it's like no. we're here. You're here. OK, you know, but, it, you know, we'll make some money. Here are our shops. Here's our culture. But it doesn't it doesn't like genuflect for the tourist. No, if, if I may, no. it doesn't <laughs> to genuflect. It doesn't even move out of the way. It doesn't no. it doesn't doesn't change <laughs> at all. And I and I I know we need to wrap up here, but I so I just want to touch on one last point regarding Naples because it's a very important one. Um, Naples is filthy; it's mm-hmm. covered in garbage and it's covered in um, graffiti. Yeah, oh yeah. Both are terrible. Horrible. I. It's so depressing because you see all this graffiti on these like really old buildings that are. Yeah. So, I mean, sometimes on churches. Oh yeah. It, it's a shame. It's a it's like bruta figura uh, uh, of the utmost. And what is your kind of recommendation for people when you know you're going to this city and you're see, they see this, especially if you're coming from you know somewhere where you're you visit Tuscany and you visit Florence and they're just they're so put together and run well. Yeah. And then you get to Naples and there's this blight in the midst of all this history and beauty. It's funny. One of my many meetings in Naples, I was, um, I had a big delegation of American business people that I was leading uh, when I was at the National Italian American Foundation, one of whom at the time was a senior vice president for Hilton mm. International. And this story. we were scheduled, yeah, you've heard it many a time, I'm sure. <laughs> we were scheduled to meet the mayor of Naples. He had to cancel, so they they dumped us off on the, uh, what they call assessore culturale, the cultural assessor, or like a vice mayor for culture, whatever. And it was like an older woman, out of central casting for Naples, you know, flaming dyed red hair, uh, the big, the gruff voice, you know, woman and a big, big woman looked like my grandmother's sisters. 
Uh, you could tell she probably smoked two packs <laughs> of cigarettes with no filters a day. And she came in and gave us the whole ceremonia. Oh, you know, it's like to make a big fuss over where we are. And then we got into a question and answer portion. And this was a, a, an attempt to be a business to business interaction, you know, supposed to be right. business done. And so this yeah. gentleman from Hilton International said, you know, we we at Hilton don't have a property uh, in Naples, but we have been looking. We think that there's uh, significant potential going forward in, in the tourism. Blah, 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 blah. Naples had been seeing an increase in tourism before mm-hmm. COVID. And uh, he said, but, you know, we are an American company and uh, a good portion of our customer base is American tourists. And we think that there's a sincere concern for an American, even subconsciously, when they see garbage and graffiti and, you know, particularly graffiti as to, to, to mean a place is unsafe. And the, the uh, cultural assessor, the vice mayor, put her finger up in the air and started doing this sort of pontificating twirl. And she said, you know, basically spoke to him like he was brain dead. And he just said, oh, you know, you you need to understand that Naples is is and has always been, this is in, in Italian, an artistic city. And uh, it's not a graffiti in Naples is not a sign of crime. It's a sign of artistic liberty. And uh, artists from Germany and Turkey and places around the world come to Naples to express themselves. And I my job is on the floor. And I just wanted to say to like, lady, really I trying really to convince will. this group of business people that there's a Turkish and German artist who are doing this graffiti. Like it's not even, it's not even nice. If it was like a mural, I'd say, okay, you know, it's but not, like, yeah. it's, it's just the same scratches and chicken scratch stuff. And I think there's a mindset in Naples. that's a little bit like menefrego, like I don't give a damn. Yep. And yep. Like, you know, take us as we are. And, you know, we've survived all this and there's an edge to Naples that does exist. This like chip on the shoulder edge psychologically. Yep. And maybe it's necessary for a place like that because it is a more, difficult place to live and survive in in that sense but as a tourist you know know where the places that there there are plenty of parts in naples that are very safe there you, you should maybe be a little extra cautious not unlike you would in other destinations not yeah, unlike in you New would York in city. american cities yeah, you know I mean? yeah. Mm-hmm. and you know be smart and uh study where you're going to go and right. you know get the right recommendations build an itinerary and there's so much to see and do you it's not like you'll be struggling to, you know, you won't run out of places that no. are, that are very, very accessible for tourists. Yeah. You just like New York city, there, are, there are parts I would tell you to not go to. I mean, it's pretty simple. Let me tell you, increasingly, I don't even and, know and increasingly find parts. I mean, uh, you know, it's a whole other episode. Yeah. yeah um, so I will add to that, that I was visiting with my cousins who live about 40 minutes away from Naples. And I asked them, I said, please explain to me, what is this mentality with the garbage, because I, I witnessed people tossing garbage on the floor too. And I, and I said, you know, by us, this is just not done anymore. I mean, I know it used to be, but like, we just, this is like vergogna, you know? And they said a couple of things that I found really interesting. And one was, first of all, if I come to you, let's say I'm Napolitan and I, I'm even accustomed to throwing garbage, but I come to you and I have a piece of paper and I go to throw it on the, on the ground but I look around and there's nothing there. There's no garbage. I'm going to put it in my pocket. So it's almost like this, you know, the dam is open and it's just continues right to flow. And then they also said, you have to, I, you know, we know you understand, but the spirit here, the way Nabali Dons are is that, okay, you want to tell me that I have to throw this out. Okay. Oh, sure. Okay. And then when you turn around, I'm going to throw it wherever I want to. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's that chip on the shoulder. It's the chip on the shoulder. So I want to, yeah, I was like confirming what you said. And, and when he said that, I thought it's stupid. It's an ignorant thing to do to your city, but I, but I get it. It's, it's the same reason why there are seemingly driving laws on the books that everybody collectively ignores in favor of a subterranean uh, set of laws that the people themselves create on how to drive. Yeah. There are laws there, you know, they're unwritten, they're unspoken, but there, there is a, there is, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's a a consensus. There's a a consensus. Yeah. Yeah, There's a flow and you need to know the flow. Yeah. There's a common law that that, common law. Mm -hmm. I think that like, you know, look, it's, it's evidence by, what New York is going through right now. I was down at the new property in Little Italy the other day. Uh, we're building a new studio for the Italian American podcast. And I went with the architect and I was looking at the windows. It's a brand new building. Just literally, they just took the uh, coverings off and all, already there's graffiti on the windows. And, mm. you know, if you lived in New York, like we did in or around New York in the 80s, you remember that. And then the 90s, it was gone. And the 2000s and 2010s, it didn't exist. And all of a sudden it's back. And, you know, th- that's where we get to the point in the country where we talk about law and order and lawfulness. And, you know, when you stop prosecuting small crimes like that, it changes the mentality. Obviously there's no fear Mm -hmm. of repercussion. And then, you know, you think about the way that New York got rid of New York had as much graffiti as Naples in in our lifetime. How did it, was it, how was it handled every time somebody did it? A a police or part of the civic uh, government went out. And washed it off. And, and you know, enough time somebody comes and spray paints and then it gets washed off. It's like a dog with a, a toy. It's like, I don't want to play with this anymore. Right. It's no it, fun it's, anymore. It's no fun anymore. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and that's the that's that's missing in Naples, as evidenced by the right. conversation with the mayor. Exactly. You make a great point that 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 conversation with the mayor, you know, she's not even accepting that it's a real blight or a real thing, let alone are they enforcing uh, you know, regulating it so that people aren't doing it anymore. And that goes for the graffiti and the trash. And, and actually my cousins said something to that point. They were like, if people started to actually get fined and, you know, in trouble and ticketed every time they did it, people would stop doing it. But it's just for whatever reason. I mean, I know, I know the mafia was a problem in, I think the eighties uh, or nineties when it came to the garbage and streets. Even today, even, even not that long even ago. Today. You know? Yeah. They, they, they want to withhold, yeah, they, they control a lot of too. those concessions so they don't take yeah. the garbage. And yeah, it's, it's horrible. I mean, it's there's there's a million underlying factors, but ultimately, like we face in our country and most countries will face at different points. It's it's a matter of, so like you said, social conventions. And in some cases, the social convention is uh, the laws in the books and I abide by that law. And that's great. That's a double edged sword that you get to fight with. And in other places, it's, you know, kind of the least common denominator. And I think, you know, we live in a society that's way more liberated than it's ever been. And I think it's great that people feel the um, confidence in their personal freedoms and things like that. But at the same time, we have to understand, like, certain things that we may not like that are restrictive, that may be more restrictive on others because of the way people live. uh, I think that that's the idea of consensus, right? Like, it's not Mm -hmm. just about everybody doing what they want. There have to be rules because if right. that, if, if that if that order breaks down what do you replace it with right and it's called a civilization right and a society it's a trade-off you know there's it's plenty a trade-off of that, it's how you work there's plenty of things that every 
citizen doesn't like about living in a place and the rules and I'm sure there's laws and rules and conventions that um, that frustrate everybody in different ones. But the bottom line is that's the trade off. Exactly, exactly. And in in Naples, they've the trade off is different. (laughs) Yes, it is. Right. They've decided on it. They've decided on that. But I guess in their case, it's interesting because it's a mutual independence and everyone's kind of on the same page, but they're trading that uh, law and order cleanliness in a way for their spirit, for whatever the, you know, for whatever that's worth. So John, of course I could, you and I could talk for another five hours easily. Um, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It was terrific conversation, both both episodes. I'll link to the first part of this in the show notes and just want to remind everybody to visit Naples, to visit Matera, to visit Sicily. If you have any questions, you can find John and I on Instagram or you can email us. We're we're happy to talk to you about these things. And, and I hope that these conversations have inspired you to learn more about your own heritage and also, you know, to visit Southern Italy, which is a very big part of our hearts and obviously a place that we we believe is worth visiting yeah i I mean i love to be an ambassador for our place and uh i also encourage people to find their place wherever that is and and you know you too can share in these amazing experiences of your own kind like like we have and there's just nothing like it there's nothing like closing the loop on that story and uh i appreciate you having me on here i'm very honored i know how much of a passion project this is and uh i'm always happy to be a part of what you're doing so thank you for having me okay folks hope you enjoyed that episode and also part one of the same conversation just a reminder i am over on substack my publication is titled the tradition of living beautifully. If you like what you hear here, you will love the tradition of living beautifully. So definitely hop over to Substack. The link is in the show notes and check out some of the things I'm putting out there. Please share the show with friends and on social. If you have not left an iTunes review, I would love it if you did so. It definitely helps the show to become more visible, and that helps me to continue to produce it. You can also find me over on Instagram at Dolores underscore Alfieri underscore Taranto. Here's to knowing your roots and cultivating a beautiful life from their power. Mm-hmm.